When eight libraries closed in the city of Buffalo in 2005, many communities were impacted by the losses of these institutions, some more than others. In some parts of the city's east side, the nearest library is three miles away. Bookstores are scarce as well. Garrett Looker tackled the issue of book deserts as a response to the less than desirable literacy rates observed throughout city schools. An edition of East Side Stories followed the issue by observing how a nearly 50-year-old bookstore on Jefferson Avenue has long sought to be an answer to the problem of yet another form of disinvestment. For Investigative Post, this is Reporter's Notebook. You've discovered a very important and I feel like under-discussed issue that's on the east side of Buffalo. You hear a lot about it, especially after 514 being a food desert, but it's also a book desert. And by you delving into this, it really inspired a great story that you produced and even one I was able to produce as well. I'd like to go back to when you first started taking on this topic. You know, what, what inspired you to look into, hey, how much literature is available for people who live on the side of town? Yeah, it was actually um, back in February after we had done some reporting on literacy uh, and uh, the science of reading here in Buffalo Public Schools, um, really diving into the debate of how reading is taught, how literacy is taught in schools. And after that story uh, ran, after those two stories ran actually, um, I had just accidentally really run into someone that uh, was interacting with it on social media, which I guess this shows the best that social media can be sometimes through yeah. the, the murk and the mud of what social media can also be the negative side. Uh, but anyway, um, I started reading about this individual who has been studying literacy uh, and has been studying something called a book desert. Um, and I had never heard of that. It was pretty self-explanatory at the time. Of course, we've heard of food deserts and we've done, uh, we've done a lot of reading and reporting on food deserts before, mm -hmm. um, like you said, especially after 514. Uh, but I had never heard of a book desert. So what I started doing was I just started asking questions. And uh, very early on, it was um, evident that it would be really hard to pin down exactly the numbers of how many books could get in the hands of kids, specifically because the private sector is really hard to find hard numbers. Uh, right. But the public sector is not. So that's when I started looking at the library system here in Erie County. And what I found was... If I had lived here my entire life, I probably would have known it already. But since I've only been here a year, it was quite a shock to me to see that in 2005, the system uh, went through a seismic shift, um, a, a great change in uh, a change of funding from the county that resulted in 15 fewer libraries uh, countywide. Mm -hmm. um, so then I started diving into, well, how has that affected the state of literacy and the state of reading here in Buffalo and the county um, in the nearly 20 years since. Wow, that's, that's really amazing that you were able to, you know, link those two. And what did you find when you started delving into, you know, how the loss of the libraries affected literacy and residents? Well, I found that uh, like what we see with food deserts, um, and, and not only me, uh, and not only the data, but a lot of the people that I spoke with, both uh, uh, professionals and experts and real people that have to deal with this every day, is that it was predictable. Uh, where you're finding a food desert is where you're finding disinvestment, is where you will find a book desert, um, more than likely. 
uh, you're not going to find the uh, actually one of the first things that I really looked at was um, free little libraries. I found a map that had been published in 2019 of the individual libraries that people put in their front yards or maybe in a park. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a really cool thing to see, the, the map. I didn't know anyone had mapped those out. Um, and there's a huge swath, a hole on the east side uh, where you're just not going to find one. And then it became... Uh, almost a mapping expedition of can I figure out what location in the city is the furthest walk to get a book uh, for free. And that was um, really, uh, it became the, uh, the dead end street of Milburn, which I've been several, several times. And uh, the first time I went, there was a, a love seat couch in the middle of the street covered with uh, a very late winter snow. And it was eerily quiet. I remember uh, just very quiet, almost desolate. Nobody's in the streets. No one's around. And when I went back in the spring and when I went back in the early summer and when I went back during the middle of the summer, uh, it was the same thing. Very few people around, very few people to talk to. I knocked on the doors. No one answered. Um, and just it felt in some regards the end of the earth. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I actually went there with you when we were gathering some footage and all, and it's a very closed off, almost secluded area. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, it was very, it was great for me to go and see because, you know, being new to Buffalo, you learn about these different neighborhoods and how they're very unique and how they have different characteristics. And we hear all the time about the Broadway Fillmore, and the Broadway Fillmore is characterized by the Central Terminal, of course. Uh, this beautiful high monolith of a structure that towers above everything else in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that side of the tracks. This part of the Broadway Fillmore is almost entirely wrapped around by railroad tracks, and it's hard to get to the other side. Mm -hmm. um, so even this part of a neighborhood that's been largely disinvested is even further away from things. Uh, that's amazing. You hear about this and that side of the track hypothetically, but this is quite literal, you know. The quite the literal, that it yes, makes. yeah. Wow. So you spoke to a lot of very insightful people, from literacy experts to residents who actually live in these book deserts, um, people who are part of our Buffalo and Erie County Library System. Who, out of all the people that you interviewed, I know they all gave probably a different perspective and different information, but who said something that was maybe the most surprising or insightful to you in relation to your story or your, your research? One thing that I always try and do when, when I report and do my research is that, of course, you and I know that um, journalism is all about numbers and it's all about getting the facts, right? And I fear that too often we forget that these stories are about real people. So from the very jump, I, I wanted to find someone that was being affected by this. And uh, I went to a church service. I went to community meetings, just trying to find people. And, and it was frustrating because you're meeting these people um, and you're talking about it. But I kept on coming into people that were more like activists that were trying to solve this problem, huh. people that understood the disinvestment and they were trying to get books into the hands of kids but no one that actively lived in this type of situation. And it was very late in the process that I was driving through the Broadway Fillmore again, um, 
uh, a block and a half, two blocks away from Milburn when I met Nakia Looper, who is a mother of three that lives in this neighborhood. She's lived in this neighborhood her entire life. Uh, she's raised these kids here. Um, her, her oldest kid went to one of the libraries that were shuttered uh, back in 2005. Mm. And she just had this, this incredible insight that, like I said earlier, was predictable because of the things that we, we know of and this disinvestment and this systemic racism that we are continually turning over new stones and learning new things about and how it affects people. But here, standing in Nakia Looper's front yard, she's actively telling me about the hurt and telling me about the emotion that she's lived in her entire life and this conflicting emotion of, I do love my home, but I want to get away from my home so badly. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, I all of the pieces had pointed to something like this, but I hadn't gotten that type of quote yet. I hadn't gotten that type of interaction yet. And that was the most impactful for me, specifically when Looper was talking about how much her neighborhood is forgotten. And she called it something. She called it the hole of the belly. Once you get sucked in, they don't come back out. It's the hole of the belly. I, I feel as though everything is getting taken from us and not no re- enough resources for us. That's a very striking quote and perspective. And it's amazing to see how even something like, you know, you wouldn't think about a library or a bookstore directly relating to maybe investment or disinvestment or anything like that, but it really tells the story of how systemic changes within the city have really affected certain neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, another one of my sources uh, who, he was here when those clo- closings happened. Uh, he's the CFO of the library. Excuse me, he was the CFO of the libraries. He just retired this week. Yeah, wow. Um, which is really interesting to get his perspective. Um, Ken Stone, the former deputy director of the Buffalo and Erie County Public Libraries, he experienced this closure, you know, these closures, he experienced the disinvestment, he experienced the budget cut. Um, He saw the pain in people, and he talked quite a lot about equity, and he talked about how they were faced with this impossible task of taking away something from communities. Um, And he ended that interview with something very, very uh, clear, I thought, and it's that no matter what happens, libraries will always be by and of and for the people uh, because it's this last community space. Actually, that was what the director, John Spears, said. It's this last community space of people coming together and that it's for everyone and it's free. And when you think about that, yeah, you think, wow, that would never be taken away from a community. That's not part of the disinvestment. It's a this free thing of, of a community, yeah. but it was. Um, uh, and it continues to be, and it has long-ranging effects, as we, as we noted in the stories that both you and I wrote, um, how it affects today, how it affects communities today. Yes. And you've been, as you mentioned earlier, doing this research, putting together this story for quite a while now. And you've collected a wealth of information. You talked to numerous people. How did you determine how you would put this story together, the sequence, the main points? You know, 
and how you want it to communicate. Yeah, uh, well, that's really tough because I tried to actually um, put it together thinking about, like, how would I edit this if I was editing a documentary film? And I wanted people to be the forefront. Um, and that's why I felt that Nikia Looper's uh, interview and Nikia Looper's uh, sentiment was so important to have in the story. Because again, this is a very important story about numbers and about disinvestment, but it's about people. People are the ones hurting, um, more so than the libraries. The people are the ones that use the library. Um, so when I was crafting it, it was quite, quite a battle, uh, going back and forth, draft after draft, trying to figure out how do we mix this great deal of data uh, and there was so much left out, so much great pieces of data that like, oh man, that would really reflect something. I remember I found, uh, I, I built a map of uh, who has a library card where. And it was just something that got cut you know, on the cutting room floor, which is fine. Um, but it, yeah, this story was full of those nuggets of you know, how much is too much of the data um, and how can we weave in those human voices to really tell readers that people are hurting, something can be done about it. Yeah, definitely things to keep in mind because this is such a people-centric story, but you do want to, you know, stress the numbers because the numbers tell exactly how these neighborhoods, these communities were impacted. So I definitely imagine, you know, creating that balance had to have been somewhat of a challenge, but it's always a challenge. Um, obviously, you know, we're writers, we're artists in some regard. Um, journalists can be artists, uh, and we can craft poetry and prose at the same time trying to deliver uh, something that is incredibly important and incredibly impactful, and that's what we hope to do, right? That's, that's, why, we, that's why we do this. Um, but speaking of people, of course, uh, you picked up where I left off with uh, Zawadi Books, a, a bookstore on the east side. Um, and you took, in my opinion, you took on the harder portion of this research. Uh, like I said at the beginning, I looked at the public sector because numbers are readily available, and I did not look at the bookstores, the private sector. I'm hoping to leave it for later, but when we're in the, the uh, you know, planning stages uh, with the staff, we pitched it and we decided to go in on a profile of Zawadi for our East Side Stories. Um, tell me about that, but tell me in a way, this is now your beat, East Side Stories, this beautiful uh, diving in on a profile of the people that live in this city. So how does Zawadi fit in that space? Well, Zawadi fits perfectly in that space, especially in relation to everything that you discovered and discussed about, you know, disinvestment, book deserts. So Zawadi... Mr. and Mrs. Holly, the owners, uh, Kenneth and Sharon, they've been doing this since 1976, so before it was even on Fillmore, and they started out of their home, which was the amazing part. And when I was speaking to Kenneth specifically, and he was telling me about their mission when they had started, and how they weren't finding the types of literature that they needed, and how it was sort of scarce in a way, and you know, I thought, wow, that's still kind of the case today. You know, even still, they're not only the only black-owned bookstore in the city, but they're the only sort of general interest bookstore on the east side. And looking at how many bookstores there were, I only found two other ones which were specific to religion. There was one based in Islam and there was one based in Christianity. So Zawadi Books is really 
the only bookstore in the area that people can learn about history, culture, you know, health, all of these different things. And though it's sort of not general interest in a way, it is, but the fact that it's promoting African-American authors and subjects that relate to black culture, but it's still, as Sharon said, you know, for everyone, but it really is a gem in the community. And a lot of people have told me that people who shop there, people who have collaborated with them, like Zanetta Everhart and Zaire Goodman, you know, it's such a needed space and it's amazing being in close vicinity to the Meriwether Library. You have this place where there are readily available books, but it's such a different picture from almost all of the rest of the East Side. Of course. I mean, if you see, if you look uh, down the middle of Buffalo, um, it, it, it's hard. To, some people consider it like the Upper West Side. I, I consider it the Elmwood Village. Um, just to the west of that, you've got Burning Books. To the north of it, you have uh, Talking Leaves. All throughout there, you've got all of these little libraries that are dotted in people's front yards. If you look at um, a general picture of where libraries are, you've got Crane and Soto that allow you know people that live in this area a very short walk to a library. And this is where, you know, in a visual sense, this is where I started. Huh, if I'm living right here in this center of the city, I've got a much higher chance of accidentally being hit by a book that's thrown out of someone's window than if I'm living over here. Yeah. And that was why I, I actually had reached out to Zawadi. I had spoken with Ken on the phone back in, I think, March, um, which I thought, you know, wow, it's really important that we're getting back and talking to them. Um, what did they have to say about not only the importance of being in the community, but literacy and getting these books in the hands of adults and children? Yeah, so Sharon, having worked in the library system for over three decades, she definitely stressed how the relationship to literacy and access to books are so interrelated. Because really, it starts in the home, you know, if there aren't libraries and bookstores in the vicinity, it's going to be that much harder for parents to buy books for their children and for them to even buy literature for themselves. You know, Kenneth talked about how his love of reading and his love of books started from seeing his father and other men in their in his life read and discuss books, you know, the same way that like we discuss TV shows today. So, you know, if it begins in the home, but you don't have a place to bring these resources into your home, then it creates this cycle of, you know, lower literacy rates, lower comprehension, and I think misconceptions, you know, people thinking, well, people in impoverished communities, they maybe, you know, they're harder of learning or they don't have, you know, the same mental capability, but it's it's not true. All of it relates to what's available. It's the same way if, you know, you don't have food, you're malnourished. I mean, think about it the same way in a mental state. If you don't have readily available literature in your community, you're going to be educationally malnourished. And if the only way kids are getting books in their hands are in school, and then summer comes and they're out and then winter break comes and they're not reading, you know, in, in that period of time, it's going to cause a decline of sorts. And it definitely relates to what you had found in, you know, in our schools, the lower literacy rates and reading comprehension levels. It's all because, maybe not all, but a large part of it is because of the lack of access to books. And the Hollies definitely 
stress that, you know. And they said, whether it's a bookstore or library, it's so important that people just get to where the books are. So how does this, um, how do you think this reflects or continues certain stereotypes as well as continuing systemic racism and disinvestment of places that need these things the most? I think it perpetuates a lot. The fact that of the eight libraries closed in the city of Buffalo, five were closed on the east side, it might create this misconception of, well, those were obviously the least utilized libraries. So the people in these neighborhoods weren't actively going there. They weren't interested in reading or using the resources there. You know, bookstores aren't there because that's not a need, you know? That's why it's easier to find like a a corner store or a liquor store because that's where the people go and they're not going to find books. And that's a huge misconception. It's also a misconception what you found about the free little libraries, you know? Well, if you put one on that side of town, people are just gonna take the books and not gonna replace them or they're gonna destroy them. And I think this toxic thought pattern is what really perpetuates the disinvestment. It's what perpetuates people to not wanna bring anything into the community that seems out of the norm. Like, why would I put a bookstore here? Would people really come to buy books or would people really come to this library for more than just the Wi-Fi, you know? And I think the only way that you get over these stereotypes is to fight them by putting forth that investment. You know, people only know what they have access to. All of our worlds are limited to what we see, where we're able to go, what we're able to do. If a child, does not have access to a library or a bookstore, he might not know that he loves reading and that he may want to be an author and that, you know, there are different ways to learn based on the types of literature that you receive. It's so important. It's so important to have these resources in communities that usually lack them or that people have these misconceptions about. When I spoke with Zanetta, she talked about her own love of reading started as a way to escape, actually. Really? Yeah, to go to different worlds. You know, she talked about how her and her sister were, they were obsessed with Oprah, so they were like write scripts in like their own talk show. And, you know, that's what actually inspired her and Zaire to put this book club together after 514. She said something that I found was so interesting. The, her first thought in coming up with this book club was really after she read the manifesto of the shooter. So he had put this literature out in a sense, and she said what she found is that it was full of such misinformation. And the way to combat that is by putting out the correct information, which is why her and Zaire, you know, accumulated these books that taught people about, you know, racism, acceptance, cultural differences, all of these things. And I thought it was so interesting, you know, combating words with words, words of hate speech with words of, hey, this is how we fix this issue and this is the only way, by learning. And a lot of the time it's found in books, things that you would think are, you know, common knowledge. There are some things that you can't learn just from observing or from hearing. You really have to study just like you study anything else that you want to learn. Sometimes you have to study just what it takes to cohabitate and coexist with people who may be culturally different from you and I thought that was a great point that she brought up and it's as far as going back to the childhood something I heard from a lot of other people as well you know it's a way to escape and I think that's so important in communities that face disinvestment specifically because when you're around somewhere with 
high crime and poverty issues within your home, outside of your home. A lot of times, you know, kids especially, they need a way to escape. And a lot of times those ways are unfortunately ways that lead down to path of destruction. If they can have books instead of, you know, negative influences or doing the wrong things with the wrong people, that could not only, you know, improve things like literacy and reading comprehension, but it could potentially save lives, you know? You never really realize the impact of something until A, you observe what happens when you don't have it, or B, you observe what happens when you put it where it needs to be.